blood of Jesus. We just thank You for that. And uh, So God, this morning we are together as a group, as a family, um, saying that we are dependent upon You. We've sang about it. We've already prayed it. And now we're just coming before You, the majestic one, and we're asking that You would help us this morning. Help us to see what's in Your Word. Help us to put nothing in Your Word that isn't there and help us to get everything out of Your Word that we can get so that we would be shaped, molded, and changed. Do that, do that in us this morning. Shape us, mold us, change us. Help us to see the glory of Jesus in this passage. It's in His name we pray. Amen. There are some commonalities in the human condition. From person to person. And not just in this room, but in this community. And not then just in this community, in this state. We go beyond the state, we go into this country, and then we go around the globe. There's some common themes that run through the very deepest parts of each individual. Two of those themes, and there are many more, um, can be found in these two phrases. Uh, first, um, there is a great fear in many people of being found out. That's number one, being found out. A part of the human condition is a fear of being found to be less competent than you really are. And then there's subcategories that I'll read off here in a second. The second uh, phrase is, is the longing to be discovered. Longing to be discovered. Human beings are a, really a, a, a mixture and a, a mixed bag of paradoxes. And this is one of those cases where many people are scared to be found out, yet simultaneously hopeful that they're going to be discovered for their greatness. And it's weird. They don't seem to go together, but it's so common. Let's explore these phrases. A fear of being found, a fear of being found out. That begins to break up in these categories. I don't want them to know them out there. I don't want them to know that I don't know what I'm doing. So there's this under-the-surface fear of wanting to keep up these pretenses that I do know what I'm doing because I'm scared that if people out there actually knew what was going on, they would discover that I don't know what I'm, what I'm doing. Fear that people will find out that you aren't that wealthy. Folks who drive fancy cars, it's not a wrong thing to drive fancy cars. Folks who live in large houses, it's not a wrong thing to be driving around in a nice car and living in a big, nice house. None of those things are bad things, but they can quickly become bad things. Jesus said it's hard to enter the kingdom of God, hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And the pressure and the pull of those who have wealth is for wanting people to know that they have it and scared if people find out that their credit is actually through the roof. There's a fear of being found out. Fear that you lack the competency that you portray publicly. Fear that people will find out that you don't actually have it. Fear of finding out that you're not that cool or that you're not that strong. High school kids can beef up, young men can beef up pretty quick. And some of them, as they get older, continue to work out, but as many people have pointed out, they forget to work out their legs. And so they look like, what was a despicable me? Okay, They're tiny little bird legs like Russ Cruder has. And, and, uh, and a huge upper body. And so... Uh, it's like, okay, and, and many of those people, can, they can work out for the look, but you get them under a bench press, and they can't really lift that much weight. Okay, They look strong, but they can't really lift a whole lot of weight. Or if they went down to squat some you know, weight and went down like this, they could maybe do you know, 50, 70 pounds, 
and they're just not that strong. So, you know, the fear that you're going to be found out that you're not that strong or that you're not that, that strong emotionally or not that strong uh, spiritually. There's just this fear of being found out that you're not a great man, that you're not a great woman, that you're not that great of a parent. Talk about pressure. 20, 30, 40-year-old mamas. 40, 50, 60-year-old mamas when your kids get older and they don't act in a way that you want them to act. This pressure that comes upon you. Fear of being found out to be lazy. Or that your marriage is not as strong as it appears to be. Or that you don't pray all that much. Or you look at pornography. Or you fill in the blank. Whatever it may be. Fear of being found out. Does that resonate with anybody? If it doesn't resonate with you right now, has it historically resonated with you where there's this fear, fear of failure in this way, of people actually finding out about the real you? But secondly, we want to be discovered. We have this mixture of emotions. We want people to recognize that I can, that I will, that I could do this. If people actually knew my talent, I would be famous. When I was a young boy, I wanted to be either, I mean, I really couldn't figure it out, NBA or Major League Baseball. Such a hard decision when you're a kid. Michael Jordan couldn't figure it out. It took him until he was, what, 32, 33 to figure that out. Okay, there's this longing to be great, to be discovered, to do big things. And so after I realized I wasn't going to be in the NBA or be a professional basketball, or that is the NBA, or be a professional baseball player, uh, that, those visions of grandeur begin to grow into other things. So I wanted to, God called me into ministry, and so I wanted to be a great, great preacher. And I didn't mean a great preacher like being faithful to what God called me to do. I meant being a well-known preacher with esteem. I wanted to do great, big things for the Lord. So we have this longing of being discovered. If people actually knew my talents, if people actually knew my abilities, boy, I'd be somebody. And so this morning, we're going to look at a passage that's going to address both of these things, these, this fear of being found out and this desire to be discovered. Let me ask, for you, anybody in the room that you felt the second piece, like wanting to be discovered, longing to be discovered, wanting greatness, wanting to be known, is that you? So most of us have felt both of these emotions. And it may not be you right now, but at some point in your life, you probably have. Now, uh, Genesis chapter 20. We're going to look at just two verses, and then we're going to walk through this slowly. From there, starting verse 1, Abraham journeyed toward the ter territory of Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. And he sojourned in Gerir, Gerar. And Abraham said to Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. Now, this is round two. If you've been walking with us through this book, the book of Genesis, you know that this has happened a time before where Abraham kind of put his arm around Sarai at that point and said, hey baby, we're going to say that you're my sister. And we find out that he does this again. Old habits die hard, even for godly men and women. This has kind of been a repeated theme. The Bible doesn't shy away from telling us uh, about the head-scratching, confusing sin of godly people the repeat behaviors that we see in Abraham here. It just doesn't shy away from that. and doesn't say, hey, we're, we're, not, we're, not we're just going to push that under the rug here. We're not going to let everybody know what, what happened with Abraham. No, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Moses had him write that. Does old habits die hard for anybody else in this room? Old habits die hard. We see it here in the biblical record. Abraham, Sarah, it happens again. Verse 2, 
or 1b going into verse 2. And Abimelech, king of Gerir, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and in the innocence of my hands, I have done this. The Bible seeks to firmly establish the innocence of Abimelech. We have in verse 2, Abimelech claiming his own innocence, or excuse me, believing Abraham and taking Sarah as his wife. But then in verse 5, Abimelech claims that he's innocent. He says to God, I'm innocent, God. He told, he told me that she was his sister, and she said that he was her, his brother, her brother. And so Abimelech tells the Lord that his head, that his heart, his hands, his head, his mind, that he's innocent in the matter. So it's established from the get-go that Abimelech did not know what was actually happening and that Abraham and Sarah were in cahoots and they deceitfully came up with a plan and Abimelech indeed was innocent in the matter. So Abimelech tells us as much. In verse 3, we see that God actually declares some things to Abimelech and he shows up in verse 3 and he says as Abimelech is sleeping in a dream, talk about a scary dream, God shows up and says, Abimelech, behold, you are a dead man. Have you ever had one of those dreams that were so vivid and you woke up and you realized, like, oh my gosh, what a rapture, you know? Like, where's everybody? Baby, you here? You know, one of those dreams that are such a reality that you wake up and you're like, you know, did I really just win that million dollars? Or did I really fill in the blank? Was I, you know, really on stage preaching with, with no clothes on? Like, you know, like, it was just so vivid, so, you know, so real that this is the reality of God speaking through this dream to Abimelech. It was reality for him, and he knew that if he was to disobey God, he, Abimelech, was going to die. And not just Abimelech, but the people of Abimelech would die, all of them. God spoke loud and clear, and it was not a question whether or not, whether or not God was speaking or if it was just the food that Abimelech ate the night before. Abimelech knew God was speaking, and hello, uh, knew, Abimelech knew that God was speaking and that for him to disobey the word of the Lord meant death for him and death for his people. It was loud and clear. In verse 6, we find out that God affirms Abimelech's innocence. It's not only Abimelech claiming to be innocent. God now reveals to us that Abimelech is telling the truth. He was innocent in the matter. Verse 6, what does it say? Then God said to him in a dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. This, this is going to be wildly important here. okay? Because we need to see that Abimelech's innocence is established here. It's clear. Abimelech's saying it and God is saying it. There is real innocence with Abimelech. Okay? This is it really, in his heart, in his mind, he had no idea. And the Bible goes out of its way. God goes out of his way here to show us, both through the testimony of the man and the testimony of God, that this is in fact the case. So God affirms Abimelech's innocence. Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I, astounding statement, who kept you from sinning against me. 
Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Verse 7. Now then, return the man's wife, for he's a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So if he disobeys Abimelech, it's death for him and all under his rule. In verse 6, we find that not only did God declare him innocent, but God actually said, it was I who kept you from sinning against me. God kept Abimelech innocent in this matter. This is comforting to me on several different levels. But do you realize that God is right now restraining sin? God restrained the sin of Abimelech. Now, talk about a verse that could be offensive to even personhood. To the world, if God is directly telling somebody, I kept you from doing something, the world could easily beat their chest and say, God, you can't keep me from doing anything. And the pride of men and women around the world is seen by the fact that we think that our will is stronger than God's. And here God tells a king, I kept you from doing something against me. I preserved and maintained and at the source of your innocence in this matter. Now when we think about global evil, another level of comfort here for us. God is right now restraining the world from being as bad as it could be. When we look at the news and we see tragedy after tragedy, when we hear of children... And children in here, I'm so thankful that you're here, and we love you very much, and we're so thankful that we have the means to provide food for you. God has given us the ability to give food, and if you don't have food, and if there's a family ever in here who needs money for food, we want to provide that food. But it's heartbreaking to think about, around the world, children who don't have food. And often, it's because of the hands of evil men and women. Do you realize that things could be around the world far worse if it was not for the restraining grace of God, even amongst the most wicked people? It could be far, far, far worse. But God is restraining global evil. And He's allowing even evil men and women throughout this world to experience good things. Every time the sun comes up and we see a beautiful sunrise, and every time the sun goes down and we see a beautiful sunset, for the people of God, it's a point of praise where we get to praise. But for the non-believer, it's grace that they would be allowed to see that. It's God's grace to people who are everywhere, all across the world. And so God is restraining evil even right now as we speak. It's often been said when tragedy happens, a plane goes down and people ask, where was God? And yet, day in, day out, thousands of planes all throughout this world are taking off and landing. And nobody is saying, God, thank you that these airplanes have not crashed today. This is God's common grace. It's just, when we drove here this morning, nobody got in a wreck. Like, that's God's grace. If God, there could be way more. And God is gracious and He is kind. So God tells Abimelech, I kept you innocent in this matter. In verse 7, He gives him a directive, Abimelech a directive. Give Sarah back, doesn't say anything else besides that, give the man's wife back, and then you won't die. But if you keep her for yourself, you and your people are dead, gone. Well, this strikes fear into Abimelech. 
And if you had a dream so vivid that you knew it was the Lord and he said to you this much, you will die if you don't do this, I bet you would be afraid as well. And you knew it was the Lord. And so what we see is the story begins to unveil as we see a confrontation. Look in verse 8. Abimelech rose early in the morning and called his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You've done to me things that ought not be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? We see almost like this courtroom appeal where Abimelech's going to lay out his case. And then Abraham is going to lay out his case, his side of the case. And we're going to be able to see with just very, very clearly, with great and wise judgment as we judge this passage, we're going to be able to see who is in the right and who is in the wrong. And it's going to be clear. It's going to be easy. It's going to be very almost impossible to misinterpret. So Abimelech calls his servants and he begins to expose what Abraham and Sarah did to Abimelech in the kingdom. And the people started shaking in their boots. Abimelech tells the servants, and he calls out Abram publicly, and he said, You sinned against me and my kingdom without cause. I was innocent, and you brought great sin to our gates. And he asked, Why? Why would you do this thing? And if you've been sinned against, you understand where Abimelech's coming from. And you would wonder, Why did you do this? I was innocent in the matter, and you came, and you approached me, and you brought great sin to my doorstep. The pain that comes from that, the feeling of offense, have you ever been innocent in a matter, sinned against, and felt the pain of that, and wondered why? Why would you do this to me? Why would you do this to me? So Abimelech puts him on trial in front. Why, Abram? Why? Verse 11 to 13, we get Abram's side, and we see his sorry excuses. Verse 11. Abraham said, I did this because I thought there's no fear of God at all in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father. They're not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness that you must do to me at every place to which we come. Say of me, he is my brother. So we see Abraham and Sarah are in cahoots. Now, it was not until about two years ago that I realized that in cahoots means working together. I used to think that meant that they were apart, that people didn't like each other if they were in cahoots. Does anybody else know that? If you're in cahoots, I thought it meant that like you really were frustrated with each other. Well, come to find out, as of the year 2016 for Jared Sparks, in cahoots means working together. And here is Abraham and Sarah, and they had this plan and plot all along. And even though it didn't work out the first time, and it imploded, like most human plans do, they tried again. So Abraham, his excuses to the people were highly offensive. He said, I thought you were a godless place. I thought you would kill me because of my wife. And Abimelech, I didn't really lie. She's my half-sister. It's half-true. And Sarah was just being loyal to me. So let's just interpret this. Abimelech or Abraham and Sarah? Abraham and Sarah here. Who's in the right? 
Abimelech, who's in the wrong? Do his excuses hold up? Is it established both by Abimelech and God that Abimelech was in the right and Abraham and Sarah in the wrong? It is. The case is clear. Only one party has innocence here. And Abraham and Sarah are guilty of sinning against this innocent man and kingdom. Innocent in this matter. Not that they were innocent in every other matter. Now his sin is exposed. Abraham and Sarah. The plot was discovered. He cannot hide. He cannot run. He truly is at the mercy of the king. Now Abimelech had this word from the Lord. But he could have rebelled against the Lord's word. And for all Abraham and Sarah know, they're at the mercy, the complete mercy, of Abimelech and his decision. What's going to happen? It's riveting. The case is clear. Well, there's good news that comes for Abraham and Sarah. And it should cause us to question, what's going on here? Why is this happening? What's the point? Where did this come from? What's this pointing us to? It should ask us to ask or should lead us to ask so many questions. Verse 14, the crazy twist of irony gets revealed. Verse 14, Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. What? Now, all God told Abimelech to do was to give Sarah back. He didn't say anything else. And for Abimelech to obey the word of the Lord, all it would have required is to say, here, hey, Abraham, uh, here's Sarah. I, I don't want to die. God came to me in, in a dream and said that I'm a dead man unless I give this woman back to you. So I'm going to give her to you. I'm going to give you a camel, and we're going to push you out the side door, and I never want to see you again. It would have been very easy, and he would have been obeying the word of the Lord. If you remember the detail from what God said to him, he said, Return the man's wife, for he's a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. That's it. But instead, the king gives at great cost to himself, because anything that he would give to Abraham and Sarah would have to be something that's already in his possession. And he gives sheep, oxen, and servants over to the guilty party. Weird. I wouldn't do that. Would you? Somebody sins against you and say, hey, you, you want my car? We got a new house. Like, here. <laughs> uh, what, what can I give you? Because you sinned against me. I, I, I certainly wouldn't do that at all. But it doesn't stop there. It goes even further. In verse 15, he begins to address Abraham. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. <laughs> so he said to Abraham, Look, look at all this land. And what part of the land here pleases you, Abraham? I want you to have it. If it's the best place, if it's this, the most glorious oasis, it's yours. You can have it. And I want you and Sarah to go with the supplies that I'm giving you. As you take from me, as I willingly give to you, I want you to go to wherever you want in my kingdom. And then in verse 16, we see something that's astounding. Remember, at first, Abimelech pulls Abraham and Sarah up front in front of the servants and, 
and the kingdom. And he calls out to them, why have you done this to us? The sin of Abraham and Sarah were exposed. It was revealed. The plot was revealed and it freaked everybody out. And their sins were found out. But this time, as he speaks publicly, Abimelech does something that's glorious. Verse 16, to Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. And it is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone, you are vindicated. What? Now, let's think critically through the leading of the Holy Spirit here. These are passages that as we're reading our Bible, as we're going through our Bible in the year, we can just blow past this stuff. You know, we just bust through it. We got a reading plan we got to keep up with. I, I missed, you know, three days ago, so I got to read like 14 chapters now. And oh my gosh, I'm way behind. And I just got to get through this. We grit our teeth and we just get, we get through it. When we think about the bills that need to be paid or the yard that needs to be mowed or the rain that's coming down. And oh my gosh, it's going to wipe out my driveway. And we're scatterbrained everywhere. And we just read through this. We miss it. What is happening? Why would this king go above and beyond the word of the Lord? Why would he bless the people who sinned against him, who brought death, imminent death, to their door? The sin was so vile that it was going to not just cost Abimelech his life, it was going to cost the entire kingdom their lives as well. And if somebody came to me and their sin was so great, they came to me, the innocent party, and it threatened my wife and my son, if it threatened you, my church family, if it threatened my parents, if it threatened the people that are in my life that I care about, I would not be blessing them. I would give them nothing of mine. And if God, if somehow audibly said, bless their, give, just let them go, I would let them go. But I certainly wouldn't go above and beyond that. Public declaration of innocence, public vindication. Those words are powerful, but it usually comes for those whom vindication is due. We think about vindication. We think about your innocence being displayed, your actual innocence, people knowing what really happened and your name being vindicated about something. Well, this is weird because they had nothing to be vindicated about. They didn't deserve any vindication. They didn't deserve any public de declaration of innocence. And so what does this do for us? And I hope these themes, as we're, as we're talking through this, I'm hoping it's thinking, make your you know, gears turn in here. You know? Jesus is walking on the road to Emmaus, and he's walking with these two brothers and saying, hey, all of this, Moses, the law, the prophets, it all, it's about me. And let me tell you these stories that are about me. And I imagine him going chapter by chapter and coming up and bumping up against chapter 20 and saying, you know what? Old Abimelech was teaching, us, teaching you something about me. The whole story with Abraham and Sarah, yeah, you know it well. You know what? That was about me. Let me tell you. Let me tell you how it was about me. We get to the good news. Abraham and Sarah experienced some good news, did they not? Could you imagine the euphoria that kind of bubbled up inside of them when they heard King Abimelech, whom they were at the mercy of, say, uh, Sheep, 
Oxen, servants, I want you all to go over here with Abimelech and Sarah, and then, uh, I mean, with Abraham and Sarah, and, and Abraham and Sarah, I want you to look out over all this kingdom, and I want you to see any place that you look at and you think is desirable, and I want you to go there. Could you imagine inside just the, like, what? Awesome. There's good news, and so it should remind us of the good news and help us to think about the good news. And here is the truth. We get back to these two phrases that we started with, the fear of being found out, and yet the desire that we have to be discovered. And we see with Abraham and Sarah that their sin was out there for the servants, for the kingdom to see, and yet then we see that there was public vindication and public declaration of their innocence. And we think about the truth of the gospel. God knows you. He knows everything about you. When we think about this fear of being found out, do you know that God knows every single detail about you? That you cannot hide from Him? He knows everything. He sees everything. He knows the intention of your heart. He knows that twisted thought that went on yesterday in your mind and you think, oh my goodness, how could that be there? The Spirit of God is alive in me. And how was that vindictive thought in my mind? He knows. We don't want anybody else to know, but God knows. Every single thought that is misguided, every single missed opportunity to display your love for the Lord to Him, every single thing He knows. And like Abimelech, God will not leave your sins unaddressed. He will not leave them unaddressed. Something has to be done about that twisted thought. Something has to come from that anger that was on display. Something must be done. And just because others don't know about it and there's a fear of being found out from others, God knows and something has to come of that. You are fully fully known. But the truth of the gospel is that the very offended party, the party that we offend by those thoughts, the God who knows everything about us, is the very one who did something for us. He's the one who came on a rescue mission for those who sinned against Him. Jesus, at great cost to Himself, came for sinners. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection secured for us a declaration of innocence. Public vindication. Beloved Son, beloved daughter, in whom I am well pleased. Jesus, who is not ashamed to be called our brother and sister. Who isn't scared to be seen in public with us who isn't nervous to be around us because He knows everything about us, who isn't shy, who draws near. He loves us. He is not ashamed to be called our friend. Jesus dies for His friends, His bride, the church. The God of the universe, as we sang earlier, has called you His own. The very party that was sinned against came for those who sinned against Him. At great cost to Himself, like Abimelech, who gave of above and beyond what was earned to Abraham and Sarah, we have received what we have not earned. 
God has been gracious to us. He has been kind to us. The God of the universe calls us His own. So there's freedom from these two things. Freedom. How does the gospel free us then from the fear of being found out and from living to be discovered? I'm glad you asked. We have three points each. For two weeks in a row, I'm going to preach less than 40 minutes. Freedom. How these two human tensions, okay? Fear, just always living in fear, looking over your shoulder, and if not physically, proverbially, where you just, I'm scared. Somebody's going to find out that I'm not that fill in the blank, whatever it may be. Is there freedom for that? Does the gospel, the good news bring freedom for that? Or secondly, this desire of thinking that I'm awesome. And even though I'm scared to be found out, I really want to be discovered because I really, I'm somebody. I'm going to make a difference in this world. People are going to write books about me one day. If they actually knew how awesome, how much potential I have. Is there freedom from that kind of existence? Because we need freedom. Both of those are crippling. It's crippling. It's no way to live. There isn't joy. For one, number one, freedom from being found out. The gospel frees us to not be a poser anymore. This ought to be a community where we can be real with each other. Where if we're saying, you know what? I was terrible as a parent this week. I was a terrible grandparent this week. I was selfish this week. Or I had so much anxiety this week, I was paralyzed. I couldn't, I couldn't even get out of the house. Or I, I haven't read my Bible. I've, I've, I haven't, I, just when I read my Bible, I feel like it's, I'm bored out of my mind. Freedom to be real, to not be a poser anymore. When we have a gospel community, we're not here to bring condemnation to each other. We're here to say, Dustin, you're a forgiven man. To remind each other the grace of God to those who don't deserve it. Like Abraham and Sarah, when we come here every single week, when we go to small groups, we're in discipleship relationships, there's never a moment that you earn or deserve the grace of God. And yet we, by the grace of God, we're free to just say, man, I blew it this week. We're free to say, you know what? You're forgiven and God loves you. How good is it to feel when you've had a terrible week to hear you're forgiven and God loves you? His love isn't next door. It's not ran from you. You don't have to run away from Him. Run to Him. Run to Him. Pray. Come to Him. He loves you. You've been forgiven of that sin. And so you're free to stop being a poser. You can actually be the real you. You don't have to try to be anybody else. So you're free to not be a poser. You're actually free from the fear of being found out. If God knows everything and He saved you anyways, what are you afraid of? What are you afraid of being found out? If God knows, and we have passages in Romans 8 like this, who can bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who can condemn you don't have to hide anymore. You don't have to be scared to be found out. You can be honest. God knows and He loves you. And if the God of the universe, the judge of the universe, is your heavenly Father, and He is pleased with you, and He loves you, what are you afraid of? You don't have to be afraid anymore. 
Three, you don't have to keep up false pretenses anymore. Much of what we do, whether we know it or not, is a version of keeping up with the Joneses. It's a version of keeping up with the Joneses. It may not be with new cars, but it's fill in the blank, whatever it is. Spiritual disciplines can be keeping up with the Joneses. I've got to keep up with whoever. Listening to sermons can be keeping up with the Joneses. I listened to, sir, I listened to 5,000 sermons last week, which is what I used to do pretty much. Okay, reading books can be keeping up with the Joneses. Going to conferences can be keeping up with the Joneses. Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, making money, having a nice yard. All those things, keeping up with the Joneses. It's got a million different versions, but you're free to stop that. What has God called you to? What has He gifted you for? Don't worry about anybody else. Be who God's called you to be and steward whatever He's given you. We're free to do that. When we understand the Gospel, we're free to be who God has called us to be. Two, we're free from living to be discovered. Free from living to be discovered. So three points under that. Finally, we are free to live for the glory of another. Our life is not about our name and getting as many people to approve of us as possible. People-pleasing is a dangerous drug. Meth has nothing compared to the addiction of people-pleasing. It will keep you alive. Getting affirmation from other people, living and working for the affirmation of others. And we are finally free to not live for that kind of vainglory. Of people thinking how wonderful and godly and great and how well you have things together. We're free from that and we're free to live for the glory of God. Our life is not about our glory or our anything. Our life exists to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Two, we're being freed from the most nasty... We are, we are being freed, and this kind of ties into number one, from the nasty and insatiable desire for self-glory. So we're, we're being freed from that. And so notice areas in your life where God is slowly freeing you from that, where you used to care when you, got your, you had to tag your name to something, or you had to let people know subtly or as most humble way you possibly could that you are going to do something that's going to make you look better, make you look good. And three, we're finally free um, because of the surpassing worth of Jesus, we can exist to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Jesus is worth more than anything else. Anything that you could ever do, anything that could ever be discovered about you, is nothing compared to the discoveries of what we find in Jesus. He is more interesting than you. He is more glorious than you. He is a better friend than you are. He is a better everything. And we are His, and we're free now to live for His glory and honor. And Andy, you can come up. And so now, we get to respond to God's Word. This is what we get to do every single week. And I steer away from trying to give you 12 application points because each week I want the Holy Spirit to take the preached Word and to work individually with you. So I'm believing and praying that God is working corporately here. But I'm trusting that the Holy Spirit is taking something that was said in the sermon, a passage, and beginning to work that in your life, and you begin to think about why you do the things you do. Why that you live the way you live. Or what you're doing on Tuesday, where some of these things that we talked about, where it's going to be on Tuesday, a draw for you, it's going to be a pull for you to want to live for your glory, or live for your honor. Or maybe, instead of wanting to do this particular thing that will 
that will help you be discovered. You're okay with who you are in Christ and who God has made you to be today. Maybe there's some area of your life that you've been hiding that the Holy Spirit is saying, hey, you need to tell somebody about that today. Like right now, you need to tell somebody about that today. Yes, it will be hard, but you now, today is the day. You tell somebody about that. Maybe it is moms, grandmothers. Maybe it's the pressure of wanting your kids to do a certain thing or be a certain way. And you have the freedom today of saying, God, I just trust you with my children. Or dads, the pressure of being the best dad that you can be or being making more money or whatever it may be. So I'm trusting that the Holy Spirit is just kind of working and then bringing these application points, these implications out in your head and heart. And we're going to pray and ask for the Lord to work. And now is your time to respond. If you want to pray with somebody, then sit with somebody and pray. If you want to come talk to me, I'll pray with you. If you want to sing, we're going to sing and then we're going to receive communion. But let the Holy Spirit lead you where He sees fit. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your grace. We thank You that the Scriptures truly are about You, that there are redemptive things from chapter to chapter. And we thank You that You clearly preserve the innocence of King Abimelech. And You scream to us the good news of Jesus. That Jesus is even a better king than King Abimelech. Jesus is the King of kings. And as Abimelech was a gospel pointer, a king that pointed forward to a better king, we recognize now, not just Abimelech, we, we recognize you, Jesus, and we thank you for what you've done for us. Thank you for bringing us into God's family. Thank you for bringing us together. Thank you that we're free to not be posers in this room. Dress a certain way, say a certain thing, em embrace certain theologies, do the best thing you can do for your... Do we're free from all that kind of junk. We're free to stop being posers. We're free to be who you've called us to be. And I just ask that you'd work. I thank you, Holy Spirit, that you do that. So point us to Jesus. I trust that you will. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Let's worship.